Our scripture reading today is from Jonah, chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 4, verse 11. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The word of the Lord. Perhaps more than any other character in the Bible, the prophet Jonah has become a figure of hilarity and the butt of a whole industry of Sunday school jokes on the internet. If you know anything about this book, you can expect that the preacher of the book of Jonah will waste no time in telling you that this is a whale of a story, that Jonah is the chicken of the sea, that he is down in the mouth, that he is the prophet of vomit, and that even a big fish can't stomach a bad preacher. And at the other extreme, for someone who's become such a cartoon character to people, people will take him so seriously. For all his shenanigans, Jonah is viewed by some people as this kind of cursed figure, the disobedient prophet, the preacher of fire and brimstone, who is assuredly headed to the inferno himself. 
I remember one of my professors at seminary, Dr. McGarry, who stated unequivocally, no bones about it, whole whale bones or other bones, first day in class in Hebrew exegesis on the book of Jonah, Jonah, son of Amittai, he said, will under no circumstances ever be found within the precincts of heaven. It's not unlike the rather predictable Christian joke, which uh, will occasionally make its rounds on the internet, telling of a young girl and her teacher who are arguing in class about whether humans can be swallowed by whales. Her teacher says it's impossible for whales to swallow humans because whales have small throats. And the little girl says, how can this be? Jonah got swallowed by a whale. And the teacher says, well, that's not a true story. And the girl says, well, when I go to heaven, I'll ask him. And the teacher says, what if Jonah went to hell instead? Well, the girl says, then you can ask him. What's remarkable is that you can have one figure from one story in the Bible that has some people laughing at him and has other people never imagining that God would ever admit such a disobedient, recalcitrant, obstinately uncooperative servant into his place of grace. But the more you read this story, I think if you can look past Jonah, you will see this story is not just about the petulant prophet or the great fish, but rather about the great God whose message of justice is answered by those who respond to it with his word of mercy. And you can also see that despite the ways that we try to distance ourselves from this man Jonah by laughing at him or by consigning him a little presumptuously to hell, we are actually more like him than we might care to admit. If you have ever had your heart broken by some injustice, this book is for you. If you've ever been the cause of heartbreak or injustice towards others, even though you've been preaching against those things to others, then this book is also for you. This is the fourth in our outings in exploring anger in the Bible. And today we're going to consider the human reaction to the concept of divine retribution and judgment. I want to take our points as we work through this from the words of the text in chapter 4 itself. From chapter 4 verse 1, we read, Jonah was displeased and exceedingly angry. And then we're told a little later, he was angry at God. I knew you would do this, Jonah says, verse 2. And our third point, God's question, should I not pity, in verse 11. So to begin with, we read verse 1 that Jonah was angry, he was exceedingly displeased. To give you some context here, and if you're new to the book of Jonah, you can find it in the Old Testament section of the Bible, which means it's in the first and the older part of the Bible. And Jonah is one of what's called the first of the 12 minor prophets, as Augustine described them in the fifth century, which sounds bad. It sounds like they're the minor leaguers, prophets like Jonah who only ever made a double A rating because there was something less worthy about them, perhaps. And probably if Jonah heard it, it would make him exceedingly angry to hear it. But the term minor prophet just means that these books are shorter than the humongous books of the major prophets. So unlike Isaiah, you can see with its 66 chapters, the book of Jonah only has four chapters. But don't let that fool you. This book is as profound an examination of the just anger and mercy of God as you will find in any place in the whole of the Bible. For those of you who aren't familiar with this story, let's recount a little bit about how it is that we find God's prophet Jonah sitting in the middle of the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. 
After all, when he began this book, he was heading in the other direction. In chapter one, you might recall, we find Jonah at the Mediterranean port of Joppa, about to board ship for a place called Tarshish, which, as far as we know, was probably at the other end of the known world, in the western edge of the map, in today what is Spain. And Jonah is going in that direction, he makes clear, for one reason, and that reason is to get as far away from the call of God to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, as he can. Jonah was ignoring the divine call on his life, no doubt hoping that God would send some other closer prophet when God tells him again, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. It's remarkable how many sermons you'll hear that skip over this verse and focus on Jonah's movements or on the sailor's reaction or on the swallowing abilities of great fish. By the way, the Bible doesn't say it was a whale. It says it was a great fish. And they will also uh, do so without realizing what Jonah's trying to do in looking away from the call of God. But chapter 1, verse 2 is what this book is all about. Why is Jonah more than just a laughing matter? Because Nineveh was the capital city of Israel's enemies. Why is that important? It's important because the Assyrian Empire had treated Jewish men, women, and children with utter barbarity, with a cruelty when they attacked and crushed the northern kingdom of Israel, the capital of the divided northern kingdom, and had taken its population into exile in the year 721 BC. This account of Jonah likely happened before that in the years which came before it but in which uh, Israel had suffered under the brutality of the Assyrians. One record from the Assyrian archives describes how capturing Israelite troops alive, they would take off all of their limbs and noses and ears and gouge out their eyes and make a separate pile of their heads or of their torsos without the slightest hesitation or pang of conscience. And that wasn't the worst of what they did. The Assyrians were the glorified terrorists of the ancient world, and they used cruelty to break down the will of nations. I cut their throats like lambs, the Assyrian general Sennacherib wrote. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. My prancing steeds, harnessed for my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. And you can imagine the prophets of Israel responded in disgust, and in lament. Listen to the prophet Nahum talking about this same city of Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, who has never not felt your endless cruelty. Nahum chapter 3. So this is the real background to the story of this very serious book of Jonah. If Jonah had been a Jew waiting to board a boat from Liverpool in England in 1944, it would have been because God had called him to go preach to the Nazis of Berlin who had murdered so many of his people. This book has humor in it, but it's not a funny book. It's about deep human emotion, about the cry for retributive justice in the face of heartless suffering, and the demand from a broken heart that God would intervene and bring justice in full measure against the forces of darkness. And we can understand that, can't we? Well, yes and no. It's one thing, after all, to empathize, to imagine what another person has been going through. It's quite another to go through it oneself. I wonder, do you know the poem Judge Softly by the Victorian poet Mary Lathrop? 
as someone who's quick to judge and often dismisses other people's pain, I've found these words helpful when I've read them. Pray, don't find fault with the man that limps or stumbles along the road, unless you have worn the moccasins he wears or stumbled beneath the same load. There may be tears in his souls that hurt, though hidden away from view, the burden he bears placed on your back may cause you to stumble too. Don't sneer at the man who is down today unless you have felt the same blow that caused his fall or felt his shame that only the fallen know. So it's easier, isn't it, to laugh at Jonah or to see him as someone entirely removed from us by time and experience and his behaviour. But if we chase away the temptation for a moment to make him into a caricature, this man in chapter 4 becomes a man whose people have deeply suffered and the deep cry for justice he feels is one that should cause us some sympathy. In an age and a day when we ourselves are being prompted to draw ourselves into opposing camps, the gospel leads us first, surely, to listen to other people's circumstances, to empathise with their pain and to seek to bring comfort to the other by the gospel. After all, it is striking, isn't it, that in the face of Jonah's total meltdown in chapter 4, his juvenile stomping about and pouting selfish sulkiness, God responds with what? Well, with gentleness and patience and quiet explanation and reasoning. So Jonah was angry. Yes, he was. And there were understandable reasons for that anger. But God shows grace towards him. As we come to the second point here, notice that Jonah was angry. And he was angry at more than just the Assyrians. He was angry at God. In fact, he tells God, he lets loose at him, I knew you would do this. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah's been angry at the Assyrians, but being obliged to come to Nineveh, his hope, as we can see in chapter 3, is that they will finally get what's coming to them, as described here in verse 4 of chapter 3. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what happens next, what no one expected, is that the king of the Assyrians himself, a man who was the product, after all, of that same regime that prided itself in its conscienceless cruelty, is struck to the core by the preaching of the call to repentance in the word of God. The king himself repents. He utterly changes his mind. He repudiates and laments the evil and the cruelty that both he and his nation have been living in. And he calls his own people to follow suit. And the 40-day mark passes, and the Lord who said he would bring disaster upon them does not do it. That's what Jonah says in verse 10. And Jonah is outraged, not now at the Assyrians, but at God. Why? Well, because he's not surprised. I knew you would do something like this. That's why I wanted no part at all in this mission to Nineveh. This is just like you. It's typical, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, all of that. And now, where's your justice? And the worst of it, 
You can imagine Jonah ranting, you've made me part of this mercy scheme of yours. I'd be better off dead. This is a particular kind of anger. It's the anger that expects, nay, that demands retribution, divine punishment inflicted on someone as vengeance for a wrong or a criminal act. If you've seen the musical Les Miserables, this is Javert to a T. Uh, I won't sing this for you, but this is part of one of the songs he sings. And so it must be, and so it is written on the doorway to paradise, that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. David Powlison explains this in his book, Good and Angry, that we've been looking at, that Javert is alive and well within all of us. Powlison says it's as if you and I have this ready-to-go mental courtroom in our minds. The judge's seat is there, the bench for the plaintiff, the chairs for the jury, the auditorium for those watching. It's all there just waiting for the next trial to begin. And you, who are you? Well, you are the innocent victim. You are the offended plaintiff. You are the righteous DA. You are the unanimous jury. You are the wise and the stern judge. You are the jailer. You are, or you would be, the executioner. But, he adds, the trial is rigged. It's a kangaroo court, the one that we make in our minds, and the verdict is, in fact, predetermined. And again, that's Jonah for you. Why is he angry? Why is Jonah angry? Because God has stepped in, because he's changed the quite reasonable predetermined verdict. He, God, has short-circuited the very justice for which he alone is solely responsible. You can almost hear Jonah muttering to himself as he walks off stage, you had one thing to do, God, one thing, and did you do it? No, we had to find a way to be merciful. Well, I've had enough of this, I'm officially taking my toys and going home, or at least to that rather nice corner to sit under that nice plant. And what Powlison argues is that the problem with the retributive anger that's ready-made in our minds is that we don't step in and interrupt the process. We let it run without thinking, and in doing so, we corrupt the very idea of justice. It's because it's not justice we want. It's revenge. And this is not a courtroom in our minds, he says. It's a battlefield. Yet the same God who understands and is patient with Jonah is inclined, notice, to show a similar mercy even to these, the cruelest and the most wretched, who are now turning from their sin. God will not play favorites. If he has shown grace to one, he will show grace to another. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? God asks him. Literally, are you doing good in being angry? Because that's what God does. That's the motivation. God's anger, T.S. Eliot said, is the unfamiliar name for his love. Behind his justice, and this is what we so often lose in our own minds, lies his deep motivation desire to redeem and to reclaim, even through the process of chastisement or discipline or punishment or whatever it may be, he wishes to reclaim. So here's the danger for you and me. The same part of you that can see what is desperately evil in a situation, particularly when it's been against you, and the part of you that has the will to force it to change can also be the part of you that can effortlessly lose its moorings from what is good and what is right and to replace it what is warped and what is wicked, all the time convinced that what you are doing, you are doing in the name of justice. 
Your anger, Paulison writes, is godlike to the degree you treasure justice and fairness and are alert to betrayal and falsehood. Your anger is devil-like to the degree you play God and are petty, merciless, whiny, argumentative, willful and unfair. So why was Jonah angry with God? Well, because God's brand of justice didn't suit Jonah's purposes. My friends, we instinctively think we know what justice is and what righteous anger feels like. But until we are moved with the love of God towards others, towards his enemies, in one of the most evil civilizations that ever cast its shadow on the world, you and I will probably have little idea of what the justice of God is really like. In fact, this is God's question of Jonah, our third point, verse 11 of chapter 4. Should I not pity? There's an old story which imagines all the peoples of the earth on the day of judgment spread out on a vast plain before the throne of God. And there's commotion among those standing there and a cry goes up, what right does God have to judge us? How can he know about suffering? What does he know what it is to be mortal? asks a woman with a number tattooed on her arm. And far out across the plain comes the response from hundreds and thousands of such people, each standing up with a complaint or a raised fist against God for the evil and the suffering he has permitted in his world. We've endured terror, they cried, banishment, beatings, torture, discrimination, injustice, death. How lucky God is to live in heaven where there has been no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What does God know of all that humanity has been forced to endure in his absence? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, and they all hum in agreement. Before God can be qualified to be their judge, they agree, he must endure what they have endured. Let him be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born among the poor, despised as a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Let him be rejected by his family. Let him be abandoned by his closest friends. Let him face trumped up false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury, convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die, so there can be no doubt that he dies in ignominy. And as each in the crowd speak, and announce the portion of the sentence. Loud murmurs of approval go up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last has finished pronouncing sentence, there's a long silence. No one utters a word, no one moves, for they all realize at that moment that looking at the throne, God has already served his sentence. There's little doubt at the end of this book as to who it is who is on trial. It's not Jonah, it's not the Assyrians of Nineveh, it's God whose justice is being openly questioned by his own people, by his own prophet. That's why these words at the end, I think, are so profound in the light of the cross of Jesus. Should I not pity? It's interesting the way God puts the question. From Jonah's perspective, and maybe from yours and mine, the question we'd expect from God is, should I not condemn? Should I not show justice? The God whose own heart surely yearns for justice, the God who is justice in every fibre of his being here. He doesn't relent from showing justice because there isn't evil that must be accounted for or because there isn't justice which must be done. There's a mountain of justice that could be done. 
No, God can take the sins of Nineveh as terrible as they were and yours and mine as terrible as they are and commute them because they have been paid for by another. The one who says here in Jesus Christ with an infinite irony, should I not pity? You see, the same God who, as Jonah has reminded God, has nature is always to have mercy, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, Should I act to the contrary of who I am, God should ask? No. My friends, if we belong to God, if we identify or at least desire to identify with such a God who we're learning over the years, is he really is as we read the Bible, as we experience the benefits of the gospel between us, as we see his mercy and the forgiveness that are offered to us, need to apply then surely that same gospel to our own externalized demand for justice. Jonah longed for a God who was partial like himself instead of a God who was gracious and merciful and responsive to the cries of people who longed for mercy. He wanted his own personal God rather than the God who is real, the God who is there, God the creator, God the redeemer. And so we find him at the end of this book stuck at a crossroads as this book ends, caught on the horns of a dilemma. He doesn't want this God of grace, and yet for himself, he so desperately needs him. You see, you and I don't get to choose what we do with God's character and his mercy. We don't have the option of redirecting his grace just for our benefit or suspending his mercy towards others. If we will receive it, ah, then we must pass it on to others. If we have received life by it, well, then our lives must be characterized by that grace that we show to others in what we say, in what we do, in what we post, in what thoughts we allow to fill our minds. If we are his, we must be marked by his pity and leave our courtrooms and our condemnations behind. And one final thought. You might have asked yourself, how do we know any of this? The prophet who is so shown in such poor light as one who clearly errs and sins against God, who blasphemes and shows himself to be a fool. Well, I like to think that Jonah himself, having experienced this, wrote these words down and showed himself in the true light, perhaps being almost able to laugh at himself, fool that he was, understanding perhaps for the first time God's great grace to him. So it's been true. Jonah was angry as we've been angry. Jonah was angry at God as we've been angry at God. But God has laid down his anger against Jonah and the Ninevites as we who have known his mercy must leave our anger with him at the cross because he too has been mercy to us. Let's pray. Lord God, we believe your word and from it we know that we have been forgiven more than we could possibly calculate by a God whose beauty and justice and love outrank any imagining that we could ever conjure up. You Lord have shown us such mercy. We long Lord to know more of it and that means we know that we must live in it and extend that mercy to those that we would condemn. Lord, would you help us to increasingly live 
in the words that we say, in the thoughts that we think, in the deeds that we do, by the gospel of grace. In Christ's name, amen.